0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hey there,
1: welcome into the Historians and Lederhosen podcast.
2: Brought to you by the Frankenmuth Historical Association in Frankenmuth, Michigan.
1: Here, we explore the history of Frankenmuth, Michigan, and more. We like to keep it fun and casual, so sit back, relax, while you learn some fun history with us. Prost!
0: Prost.
2: All right, everyone. Guten Tag. Bill Komen to Historians in Lederhosen. I'm putting that German to work. V. Gates. Voher Komen Z. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) How are you guys doing, Nathan and Malcolm? Fine. It sounded like you were just
0: having a conversation with yourself there.
2: Ah, behind (laughs) Stu. All right, so we really appreciate your continued support. Uh, if you want to stay up to date on the happenings of the podcast and the FHA at large, follow us on social media. Frankenmuth Historical Museum on Facebook, at Mooth History on Twitter, and at Frankenmuth underscore historical on Instagram and TikTok. If you follow us there, maybe you'll see a post about us starting a Patreon so we can fund a trip to see some of the sites that we'll discuss today. Ooh. Oh my God, are we going to Germany? The gang goes to Germany. All right. So, (laughs) after four seasons, we focused primarily on Frankenmuth's history and how Frankenmuth exists in a wider world, and that world has been limited mostly to the U.S. To be completely honest, Um, today we're going to go right back to Germany. We're going to discuss some of that like pre-American history that might affect how the Frankenmuthers interacted with the world around them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, between 1848 and 1849, the various duchies, kingdoms, and principalities that now make up modern Germany underwent massive street protests, calling for an end to the conservative monarchies that ruled them. Today, we're going to talk about the revolutions of 1848 and how they affected Muth in the later Franconian colonies. Can
0: I just say that every time I hear the word duchies, I think of like a hostess
2: treat or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Like I just imagine this like... Give me one of those duchies. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like,
0: doesn't that sound like just something that would come in that thin plastic hostess like thing? And it's just like, totally, you know, there's no nutritional value in it. And it's like a little too fluffy. And yeah, you're just
2: kind of worried. It's like, this would survive the apocalypse. Also, also, I'm just going to like throw myself right under the bus. This is like height numbers. These are things that don't make sense to me. But why is it? Why does a Duke rule a duchy? Why isn't it? Why isn't it a Dutch? Or, why isn't it? I can't say why isn't it dookie? <laughs> I think you answered that question. <laughs> 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 what you got there? I'm good. Now I we know. I figured it out. Now we know. You, you witnessed learning in real time. <laughs> but, all right. So, Thank you, listeners. <laughs> Garrett, why don't you go to your transitional sentence? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, let's uh, briefly discuss the ideological background for these uh, revolutions. Nathan. Let's let's uh let's go. Tell me about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Read your tagline. Come on, Nathan. Your transition line. Nathan,
2: let's put that PhD to work. There it <laughs> is.
1: There it is. All right. So, if if anyone approaches you and tells you to do a history of World War II in 5 minutes, that's almost impossible, just like we made Malcolm do. It's almost <laughs> kind of impossible to do a history of the revolutions of 1848 in a short little couple of minutes. But I'm going to do that anyway. <laughs> so um, in the mid-1800s, mid right, all over Europe, you have a lot of things happening that are changing the very everyday lives of everyone in Europe for the most part. Right. Um, you – and arguably, right, 1848 is – one of the most important years in European history—that all these changes I'm about to talk about—they kind of culminate in 1848 across the continent. So, okay. and because of that, it's also known as the Springtime of Nations. It's kind of the nickname for all these revolutions. That's
0: lovely. Hmm. Um,
1: hmm. Yes, it sounds lovely. I don't I know. That like sounds a like a good time. Just like flowers just blossoming. Yeah, yeah. Yes.
0: Just like running through fields. Ooh. Like it's
1: the Springtime of Nations. <laughs> <It>
0: sounds <laughs> this, like a great opening music. Flowers, ever. Italy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And then you have the stark contrast of the blood and gore everywhere that oh. are in all revolutions, right? That was a bummer. <laughs> I feel like
0: I know what kind of photography you would do if you were a photography major in college. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be like a single daisy in a meadow, blood splatter.
1: <laughs> You've got a spring of nations. I, I think in contrast. So 1848, though, it is this, l- in terms of European history, it's the largest. European political upheavals ever, right? In 1848. So to understand these revolutions, we have to understand a couple of other things. First is romanticism. So this is essentially Uh (laughs) right, springtime of nations. Romanticism. All sounds so beautiful. This is an artist. goodness. We'll, we'll make it through eventually, listeners. Hang in there with me. Um, so romanticism is this artist and intellectual movement. Roughly around, it starts roughly around 1800 and lasts to about 1850. It's best characterized by an emphasis on emotion and individualism. So this is a stark contrast to what people in their time experienced in their everyday lives. So what were their lives like, you ask? Well, in the early to 1800s, you have massive industrialization happening throughout Europe. Um, transportation's improving significantly. Steam engines are coming about. Mm-hmm. Right. We have some railroads are getting more and more popular. Um, we also have some pretty big social upheavals and economic upheavals. So slavery is being challenged, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Britain actually abolishes slavery in the slave trade in some sort of form between 1833 and 1838, Um pretty much throughout their whole empire outside of India, which is another story for another day. But, right, so we have industrialization. We have kind of an end to slavery, at least a decline. And we also have this move from an agrarian society, right, a farming, agricultural-centered society, to a wage-labor society. So we often take this, I think, for granted today when we think of wage labor, right? Most all of us have a salary or a wage that we earn, and it's all just always kind of in the back of our heads right? Um, (laughs) In in that time, wage labor was a truly revolutionary thing. Mm -hmm. Before this, you farmed, you subsided by yourself, you might have paid some sort of taxes. um, But for the most part, you didn't earn a steady sort of income. And that income can never really be threatened by your boss's mood for the day or whatever Mm -hmm. it might be, right? So there's pretty intense... Uh, boss-employee relationships that are starting to impact things. Um, People are no longer feeling independent, and they're pretty much beholden to a punch card for the most part, right? You have to show up to work at a certain time every single day. Um, And this is starting to, right? And these aren't your normal 40 hour week Mm 8-hour-a-day jobs. These are probably 14- to 16-hour days, and you don't see your family potentially the whole day (laughs) for a whole week. Um, so this is an upheaval to say the least. So romanticism, some of the changes going on now, combine all of this into this idea of romantic nationalism. Okay. Take these ideas, these, this way of thinking and apply this to politics okay. basically. So people begin to think for themselves and begin to rebel against the sort of top down form of power. So against these bosses and factories, against monarchs in society, right? Um, and this means trouble for you know, not only their factory owner, but also for those that are in power in these systems of government that are in place, and especially monarchies. So all of this essentially comes to a head in 1848 and what we call kind of like the hungry 40s, which I think Malcolm's mm. going to get into here in a bit. So I'm going to go ahead and cut myself off there. That's <laughs> a little bit of the background Ooh. on... The springtime of, wait, what was it called again? Springtime, springtime of Nations. Yeah, Springtime of Nations. I like how hey, you left it off on like a little
0: cliffhanger there, oh, too. Look at you. Ooh. You're getting really good at podcasting. Hey, <laughs> incredible. All right. so, so we're Nate. I in want the house. you to take me on a romantic picnic, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> and teach me all about romanticism and play romantic accordion. nationalism. And Garrett is in later
2: Hosen playing accordion in the oh background. My gosh. Softly. Softly. Just like just going.
0: Oom-ba-ba, oom-ba-ba,
2: oom-ba-ba, <laughs> oom-ba-ba, all right, so thank you, thank you for explaining uh the, that uh, ideological backing for us, Nathan. It was it, you did a great job. You didn't you didn't take ten minutes to explain uh, World War 2 So thank you. No, you're very concise. I liked it. So John Green would be proud. He, Boomer nade in the house. He would be. So <laughs> I created a fun segment today. It's going to be a bit of a play on true or false. In Germany, the revolutions of 1848, kind of their, their express purpose was we wanted to unify Germany, create the modern German state. I'm going to give you a spoiler. It didn't work out. But because of that, I started to think, I think back through history and I'm like, oh, did that country exist in, in this time period? So this is the true or false game I've, I've, uh, I've came up with, and I'm going to ask you, I'm listing a few modern states, and oh. you have to guess, did this exist in 1848 or not? Cool. Ooh. I was, like, finding, like, old
0: globes at a garage sale and, oh, yeah. like, yeah. seeing it's, like, does it say Russia? Does it say Soviet Union? Does it say USSR? Like, just little things like that. That's fun. Yeah, it's fun. so fun. But, yeah, to just see how the, the lines change over time.
2: All right, so I have five modern states, and I'm going to just ask you uh, to, to tell me, did this exist in 1848 or no? And <laughs> some of these are going to be kind of trick questions because there's there's some always known for All right. So, first one. Did the Republic of Ireland exist in 1848? No. No. You're right. It was part of the British Empire mm-hmm. in the 1840s. Yep. All right. Next one up is Did the Kingdom of Belgium Exist in
0: 1848? I would say yes. Um, They would have been kind of referred to as the Flemish at that Mm. point. I think, but I believe so. I don't think they were ever called the Kingdom of (laughs) Flem.
2: No, that's uh, that's when you're on the podcast, Mike.
1: Oh!
2: <laughs> Whoa.
1: <laughs> Deep burns today. Uh-huh. Don't
0: forget, I edit this so you <laughs> can sound however I want you to sound. <laughs>
1: I'm going yes. to add some
0: nasally frequencies to your mic when <laughs> I'm I am going to have like, like a the, super high-pitched...
1: You know, the helium voice. Yeah, I'm
0: going to pitch you up 12 semitones. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so did the kingdom of it sounds like you flip on the mic. <laughs> um, Neither do you think the Kingdom of Belgium existed. I uh, This is so outside my realm. I am gonna say no. I think it's just after.
2: No, the Kingdom of Belgium did exist. <sighs> I think I think when you're was- right. Where like colloquially they're gonna be called like the Flemish or something mm-hmm. like that, but the actual name, the Kingdom of Belgium, did exist in um. 1848 cool so next up is iceland
1: iceland i'm gonna say no iceland i feel like that's
0: if i just say it enough times maybe
1: (laughs) (laughs) it'll feel right iceland feels like it should be way more recent but i could be confusing it with greenland
0: yeah, well, that's the thing is like because the Vikings landed in right. Greenland, but like it's not considered a country for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So, well, Greenland still isn't technically a country. Oh well, see there you go. <laughs> so is Greenland on this list? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go with Nathan. It it, it feels if, if Greenland isn't a country still, I don't see why Iceland so these, would be a country this early. It feels right. like something that. But I mean, like they have like a full, they are a full country. They have a full yeah, economy right. and people and everything like that. I
1: don't know. I'm, I'm,
0: I'm feeling Nathan with a no.
2: So, some of the, one of the next countries that's up on this list is there's going to be a tandem with this, but you guys are right. Iceland did not exist in 1848. Ah. It was part of a colonial empire at that time. Uh, mm. yeah. So, next up, did the Kingdom of Denmark exist in 1848? In
0: 1848, yes. I would say yes, because, I mean, Shakespeare talks about it, so right. it's in Shakespeare. Mm.
1: <laughs> so did it? So are you asking, did it exist as a nation, or did it exist? Because if you're talking colonial empire again,
2: I wonder if that's factoring in. If, I'm asking if I'm it I'm going to say yes, it existed. Yes, it existed, because Iceland was a part of the Kingdom of Denmark in 1848. Ah. There we go. <laughs> and <laughs> there we Greenland go. is still a part of the Kingdom of Denmark today.
0: Ah. Oh, okay. um, That's fascinating. Interesting. There's going to be a couple, okay. a couple
2: there's one more country but there's going to be a couple of points that I bring up about how the Kingdom of Denmark relates to these re- revolutions like. Mm-hmm. So, the last and final one is did the Netherlands exist in 1848? And I'm really looking over at you because you lived there for a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my instinct is
0: to say obviously yes. Um the the only thing that's giving me pause is that the Netherlands has a few different names right, because it's right. like the Netherlands, Holland, um, and like and I know how to say it in a couple different languages, all of which are different. None of them are the same. <laughs> like um, like in French, it's Pays Bas, which means mm. like below country. Like mm. yeah, <laughs> so in Spanish, like,
2: it's uh, Paises Bajos.
0: Yeah, and um, um, in German, it's Nederland. but. Right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to say yes. Like, I, I, mm. I, I, I might get dinged for a semantic, but like the country of Holland slash the Netherlands, yes, existed in 1848. That's for sure. I just don't know if you're going to try to trick me with the specific name you put down because you would do that because you've done it in previous episodes and it always ticks me off.
1: <laughs> I'm going to say no just because I feel like something else was grouped in. Traitor.
2: So, Malcolm's right. The Netherlands did exist in 1848. (laughs) Um, According to the internet search I did, under that name as well, it did exist as the Netherlands. I think this... I could be completely misrepresenting, but since that inception when the Netherlands uh, gained freedom from... The Spanish Empire. Okay. I think they've existed in some way or another, except with the with the exception of World War Two. They ex- existed as an independent nation in some way or another since the 1450s or whatever. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, under like you're right, other different names like. Holland, or something like that. But
0: yeah, and, and that was like I was confident, like it was a country, it was doing right. its own country things. It's just like whether or not the Netherlands, is, like, <laughs> it's, 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 like, see, this is why I'm so bad at like standardized tests because this is what will trip me up on a standardized test. As I will <laughs> sit there for 20 minutes on one question, just being like, is it, is it,
1: I don't like semantics. I don't know. Well, you also like, have Napoleon rolling through, which also right. changes mm-hmm. things. So I didn't know if that threw a wrench in any of that especially with the Netherlands. So
0: Well, you know, well, well this is about but I guess that was before 40 years 48. after that. Yeah, yeah. So um like with all the restructuring that happened yeah, post Napoleonic right. wars. Yeah, yeah, there there is that to consider. But and, and then again too it's like so it was a country, but was it that name? Right. You know? And, and right. like I said too, like the I even country. especially when every other country language that I know calls it
2: something different. Like, right. <laughs> the Netherlands is a fascinating case of like that changing names or like mm-hmm. different countries calling it a different name, things like that. That's super but like, fascinating. Not just like with a different
0: accent, like it's a different name, yeah. is what they call it. Well, That's because in, in Spanish
2: thing. and French, like it directly translates to the Low Countries, which mm-hmm. is what the Germans called it, but then they call it the Netherlands, like Nederland mm-hmm. or um, things like that. But it's super yeah. interesting. I think, Malcolm, you hit on why a, a segment like that is really fascinating to me. As I also love looking at old gloves and being like, <laughs> oh, what did they call this city? What did they call this country True, at this yeah. time? So I think it's, it's pretty fun. Cool but, segment. I'm ready to get back to the blood and gore, though. Oh, hey. <laughs> of course you are. So I'm going to pass this over to Malcolm because Nathan kind of referenced earlier that these revolutions were pretty revolutionary or not... <laughs> <laughs>
0: These revolutions were pretty revolutionary. <laughs> That's some deep analysis there. Did we just find the title for this episode? Revolutionary <laughs> Revolutions?
1: <laughs> revolutions are revolutionary. They are. There they it are. is. All okay. right. right. Typing it down. in the show, Doc. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so what I was trying to say was that these revolutions were pretty liberal in nature. They were, they were calling for some pretty liberal reforms for the time. But I want to pass this over to Malcolm to talk about one of the specific revolutions that was a little less liberal in nature, but also pretty, pretty close to our Frankenmuthers' hearts. So, Malcolm, go ahead.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm going to give a little bit more context just be, um, just before we completely dive in because, like, you know, across Europe this is happening, and, and I think right. it's worth noting that this is not just isolated incident, incidents that happened um, coincidentally at the same mm-hmm. time. We mm-hmm. There's a bit of a chain reaction going on where you're getting, because, again, news is a lot more prevalent than it has been in previous generations, like, so word can travel a lot faster across Europe, and I think that's a thing that Americans don't always understand, or North. Americans don't really understand is just how like small Europe actually is. I mean like mm-hmm. Europe can fit, like Europe is basically what like a, a third of the size of like uh, <laughs> uh, sized states. <laughs> Not quite. Texas is quite that big. <laughs> um, but but the point is is like word can travel through European yeah. countries the same way word will travel around an American states. state or a Canadian province. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So uh, across Europe there are some significantly different Honestly, negative socioeconomic climates that affect many Europeans. There were massive food shortages, which Nathan alluded to across the continent in the 1840s. So much so that historians, like he said, refer to it as the "hungry 40s." I mean, that's pretty. That yeah, that's a big deal. That that I, causes some you know attention.
1: I, th- I, th- I think it's a good point when we we're talking just about the hungry 40s. Most people always think of the Irish potato famine.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But this was a thing elsewhere in Europe. It was a thing in Germany.
2: There were literal potato famines happening, but we only hear about the Ireland one. And we also know that because some of the later Franconian settlers that came over to Michigan to found some of the other Franconian colonies mm-hmm. around came over because of the potato famine in mm-hmm. Germany. They're reacting mm-hmm. to it, too.
0: And some of this, too, is um uh, evolution of like crop management, too, Is mm-hmm. some of the... I mean, there's other... Less natural reasons for the potato famine. I mean, there's a lot of blame that can be levied against the great um, the British government and the British royalty um, that caused it. But one of the reasons too was um, because of the development of the way agriculture was being done in Europe. Um, they were trying to produce more food quicker. Quickly uh, faster, more right. food faster, and so what they were, a lot of them were doing was forcing and having these mandates to do single, um, single crops and single species of crops too. So yeah. that's one of the reasons yeah. that the potato famine really um, took hold was because so many farmers were only producing one type of potato. There's other countries, I mean, like there's um, countries like I think Guatemala, they have like 1,200 varieties of potato, but uh, most farmers in Europe were only producing one type of potato. So when a disease infected that one of those crops, it spread exponentially. And to all the other crops, and there wasn't an alternative... A potato that that was being cultivated that could have you know saved them basically. So yeah, there's a lot of really complex reasons for it, and obviously because of these um these hungers that are going across Europe, prices were driven up and inflation really took hold. So there was also these shifts in, in functions of labor and technology that Nathan talked about um, that I want to highlight once again. Uh, Europeans were moving away from the agrarian-based economy as uh, cities were becoming larger and more populated. And additionally, too, new technology was really reducing human labor needs in farming and therefore jobs. And you also have the other side of the coin, which is industrialization and automation was threatening the jobs for urban artisans. So... A lot of times you see kind of a shift from one to the other, but this was kind of unique in terms of it was affecting urban and rural areas pretty significantly at the exact same time. So this transition is uh, called economic Dislocation where old jobs are becoming obsolete, but there isn't enough new jobs to replace those old jobs. So then it causes a lot of personal and larger economic turbulence. Um, We've kind of seen this even in the 21st century of like how many jobs are moving to tech-based jobs because Mm -hmm. technology is creating better and better automation, and so there isn't a need for a human hand to do this or that. But we've kind of staved off some of this um, dislocation because there there have been such an emergence of new. tech jobs to take over some of the manual um, factory jobs that we've, we've seen l- being lost. So in 1848, there was a series of loosely coordinated protests and rebellions in the states of the German Confederation, including the Austrian Empire, which, um, you know, Garrett kind of alluded to, which was that these revolutions really stressed pan-Germanism, the unification of the German states, um, and demonstrated popular discontent with traditional, largely autocratic political structures of the 39 independent states of the Confederation that essentially inherited the German territory of the former Holy Roman. Empire. So again, there's a lot of context lot that of goes pedantic. into this. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> pedantics here, but um, those are all the buzzwords you kind of need to know to get through this. So... Um. So after this uh, dismantlement of the results of the Napoleonic War, which we talked about, this process kind of began in the 1840s and it really spread across Europe. It's not just unique to Germany. And one of these chain reaction kind of events that um, that I also talked about was the exciting news that the regime of the bourgeois king Louis-Philippe had been overthrown by an insurrection in Paris sparked many, sympath- which, sorry, sparked many sympathetic rebellions against monarchs. So mm-hmm. this is one of those events too where like, the French decide, no, we are done with kings, because um, a lot of people know about the, you know, the very famous uh, French Revolution, where they um, killed and got rid of um, Louis XVI, but then basically Napoleon came in and just re-established a monarchy, but called himself an emperor and took over half of Europe, and then Europe rebelled, and after two attempts, they finally got rid of him. In 1812, or 1814. Um, so But they actually um, still had some kings for a while until finally King Louis-Philippe just couldn't live up to the legacy of a Bonaparte, and uh, they got rid of him. But in Bavaria, um, which is obviously much more relevant to our discussions here in Frankenmuth, you have King Ludwig the First, who lost a lot of prestige um, in his area because of his open relationship with his favorite mistress, Lola Montes, an Irish dancer and actress. Um, but again, too, the reason I bring up the whole uh, Louis Philippe thing is that that was big news in Europe, and that spread right. right across Europe, and it was one of those things where, like, well, the French can do it, why can't we do it? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The Spanish mm-hmm. did it, why can't we do it? It you it was know recent you, enough, yeah, you that. can see this kind of like this dissolution of thought across Europe, um, and 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 you know, and people are at their wit's end; they're hungry. Uh, they don't have jobs. They can't just move somewhere else and get a new job. They can't just move from Earl to Reuben or or, or urban to rural. Um, There's nowhere to go. So what else do you do but you blame the king and you get get him out of there. Um, So... The uh yes, yeah, so let's talk about uh King Ludwig a little bit more. This was obviously uh, his relationship with this mistress Lola Montes was obviously unacceptable to the aristocracy and the church. We're talking about a very conservative area. And she tried to launch a lot of liberal reforms uh through a Protestant prime minister, which really outraged the state's Catholic conservatives. Um yeah. obviously in Germany at this time we have a bit of a rivalry. Um who to thunk, Catholics and Protestants, didn't always get along forever. <laughs> Wait, um, <what? laughs> and so through this Protestant minister she was pushing these like kind of liberal reforms and passed a wide ranging series of laws providing for the abolition of most of the older restrictions on landowning and dues owed to noble landlords, reforms of the court system, freedom of the press, uh, new and liberal electoral
2: law, and ministerial responsibilities for the cabinets. I just want to say this is kind of interesting because we noted in our Episodes about why the mm-hmm. Frankenmuthers came over. These are the things that they're asking. These, for.
0: Yeah, we've talked about like the, the land requirements for marriage. And that's why our first 15, half of them got married on a boat. You know, as soon as they got off the continent,
2: and they're th- like, well, you can marry now. Also, if you think about it, the Lutheranism is a Protestant religion. So I bet mm-hmm. you, I bet you, in some some ways, our Frankenmuthers might have been pretty down with Lola Montez
0: yeah we are looking to get out because um you know because of this issue here so on the 9th of february 1848 conservatives actually came out onto the streets in protest and this is why this is really unique because across the rest of the continent and across the rest of ununified Germany. It's mainly liberals that are hitting the streets and protesting and say, we want these reforms. But this is actually the conservatives like, we don't want your mistress making decisions. <laughs> so this demonstration was the first of that revolutionary year. And it was an exception because the rest was a wave of liberals. These, This was conservatives. And conservatives wanted, bottom line, they wanted to get rid of Lola Montes. They really had no other political agenda per se, other than Lola Montes is 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 projecting this political um, agenda. So if she's gone, that agenda is gone. That was their main focus. But to be fair, liberal students did take advantage of the Lola Montez affair to stress their demands for political change because they saw her making or her assisting in the making of the, some of these political changes. So they did want to kind of capitalize on that. So all over Bavaria, students started demonstrating for constitutional reform, and uh, just as students were doing all across other cities, like, um, uh, I don't know, other cities in Germany. I'm sorry, my mind went blank there. (laughs) So Ludwig tried to institute a few minor reforms to kind of appease the mob, but uh, but also not give in and, you know, make the conservatives angry, but they proved basically insufficient to quell the storm of protest because you know ludwig's in a real tight spot here too because he's kind of kind of coming from both sides you know the conservatives don't like his mistress and what she's doing the liberals like what they're doing but so you know he's kind of getting it from both sides so he has to make a decision well his decision was to no longer make decisions. <laughs> That's <laughs> what he decided to do. So on I'm done. the 16th <laughs> of, yeah, literally on the 16th of March, 1848, Ludwig abdicated in favor of his eldest son, Maximilian II. Ludwig complained, actually, and this is a quote, I could not rule any longer and I did not want to give my uh, give up my powers. In order to not become a slave, I became a lord. So <laughs> that was his perspective on it was he didn't feel like he could um you know quell the conservative uh voices and also appeal to the liberal voices so he just stopped making decisions he felt that if he continued and made any hard rules that they would just um, Backfire. revolt and that it would, because at this point too, we're just talking about protest. There is no, there's no bloody revolution anymore. There's not blood in the streets. Um, it's very civil for the most part. Right. Um, which is pretty unique as well, um, in Bavaria. So I think Ludwig saw the writing on the wall, everything else going on around Europe. Right. And he said, if I basically just take an early retirement, I'll get my pension. But if I push my luck, I might get I, my head in the street, you know, <laughs> right, or in a yeah. basket. So um, that was that was his call, and that's where he, uh, the quote, in order to not become a slave, I became a lord. So he demoted himself, essentially, handed over power to Maximilian II, and that's kind of the summation of the Bavarian protest uh, that would be mostly related to our uh, Frankenmuth founders. I right. think
1: you make some great points in that, you know, this is a culmination and a lot of other issues going on, and he had no way out. If you will, like both right. sides, all sides were against him. Um, I recently learned something pretty interesting about Ludwig. Um, did you know that he, his marriage was pretty much the start of the first Oktoberfest? Oh. That celebrations there yeah. at his marriage. I remember we talked about this. started the first Oktoberfest. Oh,
0: that's right. Yeah. Fast
1: forward about a couple decades to eight, I think it was 1846 or so. I forget the year he got married. Um, but 1846, he implements a pretty high tax on beer. Mm, And so ironically, mm -hmm. (laughs) even though he started Oktoberfest in a way,
2: he He starts starts
1: taxing (laughs) the beer and then people start getting angry at him. And so that was a
2: smaller revolution (laughs) in this bigger one that happened. And revisionist history, the 1848 revolution in Bavaria was about beer. <laughs> that's all it was. It's all it was. You can't. Everyone knew they just didn't say it out loud. Right. Octoberfest. They're like Lola funny, Montez. Yeah. Lola Montez doesn't like our beer. That's yes. why we're. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're revolting. It's it's funny that he he started the party and then he kind of tanked the party. Mm-hmm. So. He can party. No one else can. But uh, thanks, Malcolm. I one of the reasons why I thought this uh, this topic was interesting is because we know the modern German state. If anything, you know that it was two, two different states in during the Cold War, but we don't ever really think about what made modern Germany. And when I was first like thinking about that, I'm like, oh, it's the revolutions of 1848. No, the revolutions of 1848 ultimately don't succeed. They're, they advocated for pan-Germanism, but it never gained the traction that it needed to, to establish a modern German state. That would come like, a few decades later, through the strong arming of Kaiser Wilhelm I and Otto von Bismarck, for a lot of reasons that are absolutely incongruent with what all of these revolutions were for. We're talking about like liberal reforms abolishing the monarchy. So I want to just kind of talk about why this why these movements failed and why it took someone strong arming their way into unifying Germany later. Mm. Um, I, I won't go into the unification of Germany. We can do another episode of that later, but um. <laughs> The revolutions paved the way. This is one of the things the revolutions achieved. They paved the way for the first freely elected parliament in German history, a pan-German parliament, and um, they were started. Plans were started in March of 1848 in Heidelberg, um, and the parliament was going to meet at in May at Saint Paul's Church in Frankfurt. Um, the parliament was representative of all German states, with 586 total delegates, over half of which were university educated university-educated, so that led the people to refer to the National Assembly as the Professor's Parliament or Professor, Professor in Parliament. <laughs> I just love how Germans just put words together. <laughs> <laughs> so it was chaired by Heinrich von Gagern, Um, the goal of the parliament was to draft a constitution that would guide modern Germany at this stage in history, the parliament was not given tools for success for centuries. The various German principalities and States had lived in semi autonomy. So the parliament was rife with issues of regionalism from the get go. You can't tell people like, Oh, you're able to rule yourselves and then now give that up so we can be (laughs) together. Like that's, that's just kind of, you're going to counterintuitive. Have, yeah, yeah, you're going to have the stronger states that are like, no, our interests are more important than yours, and then the smaller ones are like, no, that's not true. Um, and especially, uh, Malcolm noted that there is still a rivalry between Protestantism and Catholicism. So you are trying to ask people who think that they are complete opposites of each other. You're trying to ask them to work together, and that's going to cause issues. And yes, you can have politicians like like battle and come up with a. Um. Oh my God. Lost the word. <laughs> I'm losing it, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't help either. there. Uh, uh, Lobby? I, oh my god, no, what's the... the, 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 the 1850... <laughs> Missouri... Compromise. compromise. Hey, <laughs> you can That's have. how you got to the word compromise.
1: <laughs> the Missouri Compromise. Just start started calling out legislation. Wait, wait, you, wait, can, wait.
2: you can have politicians try to come to a compromise, but it... it really might not work for the people. So um, delegates were often more concerned with their personal local issues as opposed to a wider issue of a unified state. Um, One of the biggest conflicts that caused issues for this parliament and issues for the rivalry or like the revolutions as a whole was the rivalry between Austria and Prussia. Prussia is where uh, Berlin sits today. That's the former German state that Berlin sits in. And Austria was at that time, the leading German-speaking state in Europe. They, mm-hmm. they had their own empire. Um, so Austria had been angling for decades for trying to be the predominant German state. They wanted their empire to become the unified Germany. Um, but Prussia was really good at industrialization, really good at industrialization and militarization. So they believed, like, why can't we be the u- leaders of a unified Germany? We have more history than you. Why not? Um, plot twist, they will be. The Prussians <laughs> will be the leaders of a unified German state. But when the National Assembly appointed Archduke John of Austria to be the temporary head of state of the unified Germany, um, Prussia and other German states refused to recognize that. They were like, no, that's not that's not going to happen for us. Further, the National Assembly wasn't strong enough to handle territorial concerns that Prussia had with, I'm bringing it back, the Kingdom of Denmark. (laughs) So Prussia um, had territorial disputes with Denmark over the states of Schleswig and Holstein, and those were two states that were German speaking that were part of Denmark. And instead of having the national assembly deal with Denmark, Prussia was like, "No, we'll just take them over militarily." So they did it, (laughs) Um, because they could. This is mine now. (laughs) And they uh, that led people to lose faith in the assembly. They're like, "If you can't answer these small questions, where a predominantly German speaking state can't become part of our confederation." What are you actually going to achieve? Sure. So like like the revolutions were calling for all of these things, but they're like, maybe the conservative monarchies are doing better. Maybe they are the answer. <laughs> um it's crazy. They ultimately, here are the questions that I came up with that the assembly was asking, and this like caused the downfall of it. So would a unified Germany absorb Austria, leaving the non-German entities of its empire out? That that caused a lot of issues. Austrian, the Austrian empire was massive and a lot of it was non German speaking. So what did, what do you do with them? What do you do with them? When you, unif like absorb them into Germany, are they now German? We don't want that. We wanted a unified Germany of German speaking people, not of non German speaking people. Um, would it, or would it exclude this powerful German speaking state and be ruled by the Prussian elite? Um, was the state going to be a hereditary monarchy, an elected monarchy, or even a republic? How are you supposed to answer these questions when you've had like a year of street protests? Like, this is this is asking a lot of these people. And finally, was the unified Germany meant to be a continuation of the loosely confederated states with a weak central administration, or was it to be a truly federated, strong central government? Which... Let, that's what i said earlier you've been letting these states rule themselves in some autonomy yeah why are you like now going to be like no you you have to fall into this one central government it's it's a lot to ask of people without a lot of forethought like it it took a month to elect this con like this assembly after a year of street protests so like what what real momentum did they have for making a strong unified germany there was a too many questions that it would have taken years and the people weren't ready to wait years for this to happen. Um, so the body was forced by Austria's quick pace towards centralizing its empire. Austria ended up centralizing their own empire. They're like, we're not going to be part of Germany. So when they came up and drafted a constitution, um, the King of Prussia was going to be at the helm. It was going to continue to be a hereditary monarchy under the King of Prussia. Um, The Constitution passed through the body in 1849, but it would not be approved by 29 of the smaller states of Germany. So it just ultimately, things fizzled out. The revolutions throughout Germany went stale. Their their accomplishments were quickly reversed by the monarchies coming back and coming back into power. So it would take decades for a strong non-liberal leader to unify Germany. These revolutions ultimately asked for a lot, but didn't have a lot of thought going into it, so... Ended up failing. <laughs> um, so I want to bring up one final point that we can discuss quick. And this is how it relates to Germany. Mm. Or not Germany, to Frankenstein. <laughs> Frank. It happened in Germany. <laughs> it did it? did it, really? But how do these German revolutions that were revolutionary affect, affect Germany? Germany. <laughs> um, so there is a phenomenon known in like history now as the 48ers. A bunch of people after these revolutions failed, a lot of these liberal politicians and thinkers had to come, had to leave Germany because these conservative monarchies were like, you started this, we're going to get you. And I guess I just wanted to mention, maybe we don't even have to discuss it, but that a lot of what we come up or we discuss as some of America's greatest thinkers came over to the United States during this time. A lot of these really smart like philosophers and scientists came over and helped influence American history because of these revolutions. And it's not even just people from Germany. Malcolm mentioned that these revolutions happened throughout Europe. So a lot of these... Nathan li- did too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. I'm
1: sitting over here. With my laptop died halfway through
2: the show. So.
1: <laughs> it's okay.
0: I've been giving Garrett the eye to like wrap up because I think the battery is going to die on the recorder,
2: too. So. <laughs> all right. So with everyone's batteries dying, let's, uh, let's wrap this one, one up for warning, <laughs> listeners. Um, so thank you all for listening to one of our Stranger Episodes. We, uh, we really started diving into some, some stranger parts of history that's maybe only tangentially related to Moon. So I think that's, that's a pretty cool thing that we've done. But, well, I know uh, what
1: I learned today. What? Revolutions are <laughs> revolutionary. Revolutions
0: are revolutionary. <laughs> and there is such a thing as springtime of nations. And all right that's cool. <laughs>
2: yeah. All right. So just uh just a little with spring that, cleaning and please keep supporting us. Leave us a review. Uh we we're always looking to improve. Follow us on social media, stay up to date. And with that, Alfie is saying that was a tight wrap-up. I'm proud of you.
0: Wow. Good job. <laughs>